Amen. Well, it is a blessing to be able to have each of you with us this morning as we worship the Lord and celebrate His goodness to us. And He shows His goodness to us in many different ways. And uh, sometimes He'll even show His goodness to us with something like long life. Uh, yesterday, we celebrated one of the most wonderful ladies of our church as she had her 90th birthday. And thinking about her birthday, my, ma- my mind began to wander, thinking about all that has changed since Billy Faye Harvey was a little girl. The argument could be made that the United States looked nothing then like it does today. She was born in the Roaring Twenties, although she likely would have been too young to remember uh, much of that season in history. It was a time of prosperity and peace that very quickly changed as in 1929, the Great Depression began. This was a time of financial ruin for many and a time to rein in the excesses of others. Just a few years before her birth, World War I had come to an end. By her teenage years, the Second World War had begun. And it would be through these areas of conflict that the United States would position itself as the most powerful nation in the world. In the coming years, our military might would be seen in the Korean War, in the Vietnam War, and the Cuban Missile Crisis. This doesn't even touch on more recent conflicts that have taken place in the Middle East. No doubt that none of that would have been possible without the many soldiers who willingly put their lives on the line. These soldiers fought for honor and compassion. They fought for patriotism. This past Friday, we celebrated Veterans Day, and surely this nation has a great history of soldiers, men and women of courage, who have earned the freedom that we benefit from today. For that, we say thanks to all of those who have served. But the military isn't the only thing that has changed over these past 90 years. She's lived through 15 presidents, and the 16th one is about to take office. She's seen the success of the civil rights movement. Man has walked on the moon, and technology has improved at a ridiculous pace. A few negative elements include the removal of prayer from school, a general turning away from Christian values, and the introduction of various addictive substances, as well as various health issues like HIV, which were initially spread Uh, through promiscuous sexuality and drug abuse. By the way, there were other ways that it was spread, but that was the primary means of it at that time. Other negatives deal with the increase of fatherless homes, a lack of respect for the parents who are in the home, a massive increase of sexual perversion, a general disdain of government and the media, and unfortunately, even a growing distrust toward clergy, partially because of those who have made poor choices along the way. A few positive changes would include the improved methods of transportation, the increased opportunity for education, a greater life expectancy. That's why you have individuals living to 90 years old and much longer. We're looking forward to 10 years from now celebrating her 100th birthday. But a part of the greater life expectancy is because of advances in medicine. 
Also, we have the advent of internet communication, which, by the way, I know some people would see that as a negative too, but there's no question we appreciate much of the advances in technology. When Billy Fay Harvey was a little girl, uh, there weren't many houses that had air conditioning, yet somehow we really enjoy those things now. In recent years, the changes in our culture seem to have sped up significantly. It would seem that our nation is continually becoming more divided. We completed a contentious election season this past week, only to see even more protesting among those who were unhappy with the results of our democratic election. Prior to that, we've seen anger and frustration over political issues, issues like abortion, corruption of government officials, and occurrences of police brutality. I will tell you that the world has changed much, and in some ways it's a good thing, but there are some other ways I look at it and I almost think, man, I wish we could have it the way that it used to be. All of this leads us to a few questions. First of all, what's next? Where have the past 90 years led us? Is this world all there is, or is there something much more significant that lies around the next corner for us? Let me answer this last question for you with an emphatic yes. There is something more significant that awaits us. I don't know what's next, nor do I know for sure when it will happen, but I do know that the best is yet to come, and the scriptures give us a little bit of a glimpse at that. I want to talk about it for a few moments with you today. First of all, before we get into the scripture, I'm a typical guy in that I'm not always good at paying attention to the details that I know I should pay attention to. In fact, my wife, Linda, is much better at this than I am. She is a planner, whereas I'm content simply flying by the seat of my pants. Basically, as something happens, just be ready for it. I try to make it sound really mature and responsible by calling it flexibility, But the truth is, in most cases, it's just irresponsibility. A couple examples of this are seen in traveling. First, Linda went on a retreat last weekend. She went to a ladies' retreat that was up in Asheville. And as she was going to be leaving on Friday morning, she packed her bags on Monday. Now, I got to tell you, if it was me, I'd have been packing my bags on Friday morning, probably as I was preparing to leave. A second example is seen when people come to visit, still dealing with traveling, living away from family. It's kind of a big deal when family comes for a visit. Yet I confess that I don't always pay too much attention to detail when it comes to preparing for their visit. Linda wants to make sure that the house is spotless, that there's nothing that will be out of place. I'm content just making sure there's toilet paper in the bathroom. What do you do when someone comes for a visit? As most of you know, we recently had a George Bush lookalike come to our service. I had him stay at Al Milasso's house for the night before. Now, let me first say that Al keeps his house immaculate. It is always clean. If you ever go there, you will think, how do you keep it this clean? But when he first met our George Bush lookalike, now remember, he actually stays in character most of the time. George, uh, Al actually looked at him and thought, he looks like the real guy. He said, he said to me as soon as he walked away, he said, I think I need to go clean my house again. <laughs> he wanted his house to be in perfect condition because of who was coming. 
Well, the scriptures tell us, tell us of a time when Jesus himself will come to be with us. It's talked about all throughout the scriptures, but especially in the writings of Paul and in Revelation. But even Jesus spoke of it. One of the common questions that was asked is, when will this day come? It seemed like that was the question everybody wanted answered. Yet Jesus never really gives them a straight answer. Listen to his words in two separate passages. The first is found in Matthew 24, verse 37 to 42. And the second is from Luke chapter 17, verse 28 to 30. In Matthew, he says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And then in Luke, he adds that it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. I want you to take a look at a video just for a moment as it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what Jesus is talking about. When will the day of the Lord take place? Jesus says that nobody knows, but instead he is going to show up unannounced. Sort of. Actually, he's given us some signs, some things that we ought to be looking forward to, things that ought to tell us that this time is approaching. But people will be going about their everyday lives. People will be eating, they'll be drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, as well as buying and selling, planting and building. The point is that you're not going to know that it's actually happening until the moment that it happens. Let me first say that the hardest guest to prepare for is the one who shows up unannounced. It would be so much easier if we just knew when our guest was arriving, but we don't. Of course, there is a way to make sure that you're ready when the unannounced guest shows up, simply by making sure that you're ready all of the time. Maybe your guest is coming in about a month, maybe in a week, maybe today. But if you don't want to be caught off guard, then you must make sure that you are ready now. I wish I could tell you when the Lord is going to come, but I really can't. And if anyone else tries to tell you when he's coming, they're liars or very much deceived. This would cause some to assume that the second coming of Christ is probably far off in the distance, and that's why nobody recognizes for sure when it's happening. Maybe it's another century away, or maybe it's another thousand years. Certainly, people have assumed that Christ's return was near for 2,000 years. So what makes us think that it could happen in our lifetimes? Well, to begin with, I will tell you there is no guarantee that it will happen in your lifetime. But I need you to know that it certainly could, and there are certainly some signs that would tell us that it is likely near. 
From the examples that are given in these two passages, there are a couple things that we can identify regarding when these things will happen. First, note that both stories, Lot and Noah, indicate a time of utter immorality. There is a connection between sin and the judgment of God. In Sodom and Gomorrah, there was such perversion that violence and sexual immorality toward random travelers had become acceptable, often even involving large groups of people. In Noah's day, we're told that God looked upon the heart of humanity and he saw nothing but evil all the time. You see, the common thread in both of these stories is that immorality seems to have overtaken the culture. In Lot's case, he was the only righteous man to be found in the entire city of Sodom. In Noah's case, he was the only righteous man to be found among all of humanity. Without question, you can be sure that when the culture around us becomes overwhelmed with sin and immorality, that the judgment of God cannot be far behind. I do not share this to create a sense of fear in anybody, but I do want you to realize that the things that were happening during Lot and Noah's times are absolutely happening again. Sexual perversion dominates our media. Children are sacrificed to the God of convenience and pleasure. Drugs and alcohol have led to nothing but a sense of despair. We have become desensitized by violence that seems to happen every day. And the name of the Lord has become something to be mocked rather than to be honored. You can be sure, based on what is happening around us, that the day of the Lord is near. But aside from the connection between sin and suffering, a second thing that we see in this passage is also, I'm sorry, between sin and judgment. A second thing that we see is a connection between suffering and judgment. You see, there is a very positive element to the return of Christ, the judgment of God, but there's also a sense of suffering. There's an ugly side to judgment in both Lot and Noah's stories. The people who had become alienated from God find themselves experiencing total destruction. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed by burning sulfur, while the people of Noah's day are slowly drowned as a result of a massive flood. Between the two, I'm not sure which is the worst way to die. What I gather from this is that while the second coming of Christ can be great, there's also an ugly side to it. I've been doing a study recently on the book of Joel, which is only about three chapters, but its whole focus is on the coming of the day of the Lord. And in almost every reference to the day of the Lord, there is an adjective adjective that is never positive, dreadful, terrible, destruction, darkness, and gloom. The point is that there will be great suffering that is associated with the Lord's return. That last word I shared, gloom, is basically what we see in Matthew 24 and perceived even in the video that you just watched. Jesus describes a time when two men will be working and one will suddenly disappear and the other will be left 
Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will disappear and the other one left. I love that image of a husband and a wife who probably had been married for many, many years, loved each other dearly. And all of a sudden one is gone and the other is left. A father pushing his daughter in the swing and suddenly she's gone and he is there filled with nothing but gloom and despair. Imagine being those who are left behind, wishing that not only you still had your loved ones with you, but maybe even knowing that you have just lost every opportunity you might have to be saved. It's too late. There's a third element that is seen in this passage. We've talked about sin and judgment, suffering and judgment. There's also a reward that is connected with this. While there is suffering and sorrow for those who are not yet ready for Christ's return, there is also a great reward and celebration for those who are ready. I will tell you today, I am in that group. I look forward to the return of Christ. I see the brokenness of our world. I see sin that seems to weigh us down constantly. It seems like there's always something going on and you just wonder how much more God will put up with. And there's a huge part of me. I want so much for the Lord to come back today because I know that my heart is right between he and I. It doesn't mean that I'm perfect, but it means that I recognize the grace of Jesus Christ that has made up the difference where my imperfections come in. I celebrate, I anticipate the coming of Christ. I look at Lot, I look at Noah. I'm sure that they were heartbroken because people that they cared about died in the judgment of God. But do you know that God blessed them? He provided for them. The day of judgment is not a horrible thing for those who are ready to meet Jesus Christ. In fact, in those situations, it is a privilege for us. I've shared with you before, my favorite verse of scripture comes from Revelation chapter 3 verse 21, where it says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. What a blessing that is. On that day of judgment, when I stand before God, he's going to not only tell me, well done, good and faithful servant, but I picture him sitting up there on a throne and he says, come on up here, son. And he's going to invite me to sit in his lap. What an incredible blessing and privilege that is for those of us who actually have that right relationship with Jesus Christ. But this leads me to the most important question today. How can I be sure that I am ready for the return of Christ? To answer that question, I want us to go back to the book of Joel. I just referenced it a moment ago. But in Joel chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, we see really a statement of where we are. Now, I know that this was written thousands of years ago, but man, does it apply to us today. It says this, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Let me just 
Go back to the very beginning of that. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in this valley of decision. Today we find ourselves in the valley of decision. I don't want to talk to you about your loved ones today. That was last week. Instead, I want to talk about you. You are among that multitude of people that are in the valley of decision. The day of the Lord is near. We have seen many things that have already been fulfilled, identifying the coming of Christ. We see many of the things that are being fulfilled on a daily basis, but I'm going to tell you probably the most clear evidence to the soon coming of Christ is the immorality that I described earlier. You see, God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, and therefore he waits and he holds off judgment. But there will come a time, and we've seen it happen in human history before, there will come a time that God will say, enough is enough. And he will put an end to this world as we know it. My goal is not to scare you, but to recognize that you must be ready when that day does come. The day of the Lord is near, and Jesus Christ has declared that he is the only way to salvation. I'm going to tell you that no amount of goodness that you do will prepare you for the day of the Lord. You may be a really good person. You may may be one of those people that everybody else looks at and they think, now that's a good guy. That's a great lady. But I'm going to tell you that there will be a lot of good people who find themselves in hell because no amount of goodness on your part will ever be enough to cancel out the sin that you have already participated in. See, the wages of sin is death. But God said, I don't want you to have to pay that price. So he allowed his son, Jesus Christ, to be your sacrifice, to pay your price. I wonder at what point can you do enough good to make up for Jesus' death? At what point can you do enough good to make up for whatever sin has taken place in your life? And the answer is you cannot. Not only is this not an issue of goodness, I will also tell you there is no other religious faith that will grant you the forgiveness of sins. In some ways, this seems a bit unfair because people are raised in different cultures and they are taught basically that their way is the right way. I will tell you that for 2,000 plus years, the principle has been in place that there is only one way to salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ. What is not fair is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for you and for me. It's not fair that any of us should have the opportunity to be redeemed. It is not fair because someone who had done no wrong paid your price and mine. That is not fair. I will tell you that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And that has already been defined for us. I will even suggest this because I think sometimes those who are in the body of Christ, as in those who attend church, those who would call themselves Christians, there are many of us who even though we call ourselves Christians, even though we go to church on a regular basis, 
we may not truly be in the body of Christ. We think to ourselves that if I serve in the church, then that will be enough. If I participate in Sunday school, if I give during tithes and offerings, by the way, as a pastor, I love it when you give during tithes and offerings. However, do not be mistaken in thinking that just because you do or because you give, that somehow you are ready for the second coming of Christ. The only hope we have is a right relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to close with one last passage. And then, of course, I'll talk about it just for a moment. But it comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm only going to look at three verses, 10 through 12. In these verses, we're talking specifically about the day of the Lord. By the way, that phrase is used dozens and dozens of times. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, we see basically a call for us to make sure we're ready. This is what it says in 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. The question is asked in this passage, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? This past week, as many of you know, we elected uh, a new president. I will tell you, it's probably the ugliest election I have ever seen. Now, I know I'm not as old as Billy Fay Harvey. But it was probably the ugliest election I've ever seen. And a part of it is because I'm not 100% sure that either of those candidates was really a godly candidate. Now, it's possible one might do some things that benefit the church a little bit more, but the truth is both of them were incredibly flawed as candidates. And one of the dangers that we run into is almost as a church, us now being associated with a candidate rather than Jesus Christ, who should be our hope. There are many in our world today who are looking and saying, I don't want to be like our president. I don't want to be like the people who support our president. I was reading a, a blog, which is kind of like a journal that individuals write for everybody else to be able to read. And I was, I was reading a, a blog this week, and there's an individual that I respect very greatly. He was actually uh, the dean up at Wesley Seminary. And one of the things that he stated was that as Christians, we will no longer be able to use the term evangelical and still be able to connect with millennials. His reference was to the fact that many millennials looked at Donald Trump and they saw Donald Trump as someone who stood against their values. 
inclusiveness, loving everybody, and the, the hatred that has been perceived through the media, in many ways, he has sort of allowed to stand out. By the way, I'm not saying anything for or against a candidate. That vote's already over, so you can't blame me for whatever happens. But I do want you to understand that we as a church must be identified by something and it better not be a presidential candidate. It better be Jesus Christ. You see, because we know that the day is coming when Christ will return. And when when he returns, he's not going to say, which president did you vote for? He's not going to ask if you're a Republican or if you were a Democrat. He's not going to care about any of that. What he's going to want to know is, do you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ? I look at our nation and I I declare our nation is desperately in need of revival. Unless our nation grabs hold of Jesus Christ and the faith that we have in him, there is no hope for our nation. But I will tell you that my greater desire is not that our nation would be redeemed. It is that Christ would come back today. Because I know that as a child of God, I have the promise of eternal life that's been granted to me. And he is faithful. He will bless and he will keep his word. I will tell you, there is a concern with the return of Christ, though. And it's everyone who is here. It's our family. My hope and my prayer is that you are ready for the return of Christ. But I recognize that if you are not, you will be among those who experience that gloom and despair that were portrayed in the video that you watched a few moments ago. When the day comes for Christ to return, you will either be ready and be welcomed into his presence, or you will be left behind. You will be cast aside. I want you to ask yourself this morning, Are you ready to meet him? Because if not, don't wait till tomorrow. Again, my my goal is not to scare you. But maybe a little bit of fear is a good thing. If you're not ready, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're actually not even guaranteed the rest of today. Now would be the time to make sure your heart is right between you and him. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, we come before you today and we recognize that it is only by your grace that there is any hope of redemption and salvation. We recognize that all of us have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And we recognize that you have made a way for us to be redeemed. You have given us a hope and a promise. Lord, I pray today that each individual who is here would simply take this moment and I pray that you would allow them to examine their hearts to make sure that they are right with you. If there is sin that has not been confessed, there is the need for confession. There is the need for repentance, a turning away from that sin. Lord, I pray right now that you would send your spirit of conviction upon each individual who is here who is in need of your grace. Father, we're going to take a moment here and simply worship. But as we worship, 
Lord, our true desire is that you would change us. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, I'm going to ask the worship team, they're going to start leading us in a song. It's called, I Need You More, but I'm going to ask you just, uh, maybe right now you don't even sing. You just want to listen and maybe even pray between you and God. If you recognize the need for salvation today, your heart is not right with him. I want to open up the altar to you this morning. They're going to sing, I need you more. And as they sing, maybe this is your time to repent, to turn from your sin and to allow God to give you that hope and confidence so that when that day comes, whether it's today, tomorrow, next week, 20 years from now, you will be ready. I will ask, if possible, would you stand? Sometimes it makes it easier for people to move forward when other people are already standing around them. Would you guys lead us? And then we'll pray again afterwards. come before you, we declare our need for you above all else. But we know that there is a day that's coming, that you will come and you will judge all of humanity. But we do look forward to that day. We look forward to the day that we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. We look forward to the day that you welcome us into your presence. You invite us to sit on your throne with you. But Lord, our hearts do break for those who perhaps they are not ready. Perhaps if today were to be the day that you chose to come back, they would not be ready. Lord, I pray that you would convict hearts, maybe even those who are not here in this room, but even now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them, that they would recognize the need for you, that you are their only hope, that you are the only way to salvation. 
Lord, I pray today that your spirit would move upon the people that we love and care about so much. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be vigilant, to make sure that we are ready. And we will give you praise, honor, and glory for what you do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. My hope is that every individual who is here today is ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. What I will tell you is when that day comes, it will be a reason for us to rejoice. Let's be those individuals who are constantly looking forward to that day. Let's be those people who are constantly looking at the joy that he alone can bring. And as we look forward, help us to live well. How ought you to live today because of what you know to be true? I pray that you would honor Christ in the way you live. Thank you for being with us this morning. Go in peace.